Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. You are listening to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, great to catch up with you once again. Brian, it's always good to be with you. And as I mentioned to you, I'll be out west tomorrow. I'll be going to Albuquerque. And I guess maybe to you, that isn't even west. That's probably further east than you are. But yeah, yeah. Here in Alabama, <laughs> that is west. But anyway, the last time I was in Albuquerque in the fall, it was just magnificent with those aspens and the beautiful yellow color all over the town. It's, I hope it'll be the same this time. But well. I'll be lecturing for a school called Noah Webster College. And I'll talk a little bit about that college here, but much more. I'm going to be talking about Noah Webster himself. But I thought what we might do first is just mention a little about some of the things that are going on today. And of course, we're recording this on Wednesday and Tuesday night. There were some rather substantial elections and well, particularly in Virginia and in New Jersey, but we had some mayoral races elsewhere. And Eric Adams was elected mayor of New York City. I really liked his opponent, De Silva, but at any rate, even Eric Adams appears that he'll be an improvement over de Blasio. I mean, what wouldn't be? But at any rate, he seems to understand a need for law and order and a few things that de Blasio just simply did not understand. But then we've seen a number of referendums on proposals to defund the police. And the one in Minneapolis was defeated substantially, and I haven't heard the results elsewhere, but at, that doesn't surprise me. I never thought that idea would be popular with people as a whole, and I understand in Minneapolis that much of the coalition opposing this referendum was composed of black leaders, because they knew how essential the police department is to protect their people. They are the main victims of crime. But then, of course, we looked to the election in New Jersey, where we have a challenge against Mayor Murphy, or Governor Murphy, and this was not expected to be a close race, but it has turned out to be one. His Republican opponent was leading for a good share of the night. Right now, I'm told, as of a couple hours ago, he is behind by about 1,700 votes, which is very close, and... I don't know what to think, what's going to happen there. It looks like some of the areas where votes are yet to be reported are Democratic areas, but maybe not all of them. But at any rate, coming this close in a state like New Jersey is certainly an achievement and a victory and should certainly cause the radical left to rethink the agenda that they've been trying to impose on this country. But of course, the biggest of all is Virginia, Virginia, since 2008, has voted solidly Democratic in its presidential races and for statewide offices. And now we have Youngkin, who is elected by not a landslide, perhaps, but by a margin that a few weeks ago would not have been expected at all. And nevertheless, he has been soundly elected. And his lieutenant governor candidate, lady with the most fascinating name of Winston Sears, a black lady who 
came here as a child with her parents from Jamaica and served as a Marine and then in the legislature and just seemed like a remarkable woman. And I was so impressed in her victory speech last night that she gave the credit to the Lord for her victory. And she talked about how even though she was, at the time she joined the Marines, she said, I was still a citizen of Jamaica, but America had done so much for me. I was willing to fight for America. I was willing to die for America. And I love that spirit that she showed. And then the Attorney General, Attorney General, his family fled here from Cuba, and so he is a Hispanic immigrant. And yet this whole ticket, Youngkin and the Attorney General and Sears, a Hispanic, black, and a white, they're being called Nazis and racists. It's incredible, but part of this has to do with dissatisfaction over the way President Biden has been running the country. Part of it, I think, has to do with concern over unfair elections, but part of it has to do with the economy. But one of the biggest things, of course, has been the efforts to force critical race theory and other types of doctrines that people don't like, transgenderism, which is certainly tied in with critical race theory. After all, if you believe that all truth is subjective, then as far as what gender you are, it doesn't matter what your DNA says or what your anatomy shows. What matters is what you want it to be. So they go together. And when transgenderism is being forced on people, well, people are starting to get fed up with that and they're starting to rebel. And Particularly, of course, we've seen the downstate areas, which are more old south in Virginia. They're in the south, the central, and especially in the Shenandoahs and in the mountains of the west. We're seeing counties there voting 85 to 88 percent for Youngkin at this time. But probably the biggest thing is that he was very competitive in the suburbs, which recently had been lost in that area to the Democrats. And some say that one of the things that Youngkin was able to do was take the basic values, the basic message that President Trump advocated, but presented them in a way that maybe didn't have some of the harsh tone and maybe some of the, the baggage that was associated with President Trump. And if that's the kind of candidate that Youngkin can be, one who can articulate this message in a way that makes it acceptable to people that didn't care for some of Trump's style, well, this may be a major victory and a major direction for the conservative movement and the Republican Party in the years to come. Anyway, I am very encouraged about what I saw last night. One thing we're still waiting to see in Virginia is who is going to control the legislature. That, of course, is very important. If we have Republican statewide office holders, but if you have a Democrat legislature that is going to obstruct them, then they may not be able to get much done. As it stands right now, it looks like in this delegate, House of Delegates of 100 members, the Republicans have won 49 seats. The Democrats have won 47 seats. And there are four seats that are still undecided. And anyway, so 
if they all break for the Democrats, then we'll still have a Democrat legislature. But if one breaks for the Republicans, then we'll have a split legislature presided over by the lieutenant governor. And if two break for the Republicans, then we'll have Republican control of the legislature, which obviously that doesn't mean they're going to win every vote. But one thing very important about who controls, who is the majority in a legislative body is the majority means that members of the majority will be the committee chairman and the speaker and other people like this. And anyway, that being, by the way, I think I just said something wrong. The lieutenant governor would preside over the Senate, but the House of Delegates would be a speaker from that house, I would assume. But anyway, so a lot of interesting things going on and they are breaking our way. Interestingly enough, we looked at the vaccination issue and Several days ago, a federal judge issued an order in a case where a number of military personnel had filed a lawsuit claiming that their religious exemptions were being denied. Well, this this particular federal judge issued an order directing directing the military to explain its process by which they evaluate and approve or deny exemptions. And that will be encouraging. Also, we have another thing that's interesting going on here, and that's that a couple days ago, the Attorney General of the state of Alabama issued an order directing to all state employers, that is, private employers in the state, and all state agencies that employ, and all medical employers, that is hospitals and so on, directing them that they are to construe all religious exemptions very liberally in favor of the person who is seeking the exemption. That's an encouraging thing as well. So many exciting things are going on, and now we're going to, in just a little bit, get into this founding father, a very important figure in American history, Noah Webster. And we think of him as a cousin of Daniel Webster, and he was Daniel Webster, one of the greatest orators in American history. And yet Noah Webster may be more influential in many ways. Let's look at him after the break. It's a my pillow for the rest of your body. The my pillow mattress topper. You will sleep well. Check it out. MyPillow.com, promo code USA, or call 1-800-951-8175. Don't forget, using my promo code USA will save you a bunch of money on anything on the MyPillow website. Christmas is coming. Get ready. MyPillow.com, promo code USA, 1-800-951-8175. I know it's just October, but it's never too early to look for Christmas gifts and give those you love the gift of a good night's sleep. Go to MyPillow.com, shop for great gifts, including the original MyPillow, MyPillow slippers, mattress toppers, pet beds, and of course, my promo code USA will save you up to 66% on anything on the MyPillow website. Go to MyPillow.com, promo code USA, and give someone a gift that you love. You know, a lot of times you have to choose between something high quality 
or something that saves you money. But if you can get both, why not? Especially when it comes to health care. And that's MediShare. You get both. The typical family saves 500 bucks a month switching to MediShare. And that's huge. But it's also true that people are way more satisfied after making the switch, too. The customer satisfaction rate for MediShare is double that of the typical health insurance plan. Double. It's because MediShare works. It's been around for more than a quarter century, and members have shared more than $3 billion of each other's bills. People love having telehealth and a huge PPO network. So, yeah, really, you could save a ton and like it better. Imagine being happy with how you're taking care of your health care. If you're self-employed or part of the gig economy, or you just want a plan you're happy with, you can call right now and get a price within two minutes. Here is the number you need. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Bible. The following are real life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one one easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Once again, here is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Today, Colonel, we get to learn about uh, Noah Webster. That's a name I bet a lot of folks recognize, but I bet most, most of us don't know much about him. It's interesting. We look to America's founding period, and there are a number of people that we will call America's first or America's greatest and so on. And we think, for example, about George Washington, who we call the father of his country. Or we think about Thomas Jefferson, who we call the father of the Declaration of Independence. Or Samuel Adams, the father of the American Revolution. Or we speak about George Whitfield as America's first preeminent evangelist. Or of John Whitfield, or rather John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon being the president of the College of New Jersey, which became known later as Princeton. That's what it's called today. But there in the school was about 18 students in each graduating class. And yet, out of those graduates that he had when he was president of that school, John Witherspoon had... 113 clergymen out of those graduates. He had some 13 governors. He had 20 United States senators, a vice president, Aaron Burr, and a president, James Madison. So when you look to the Constitutional Convention, of those 55 delegates to the convention, nine of them, that's about one-sixth, had been students of Witherspoon there at at the College of New Jersey. We look to these various figures, and now we're going to look to another, and that is Noah Webster. 
And we called Noah Webster America's schoolmaster. Think about Noah Webster, and there are several Bible passages that come to mind. One might be, jokingly, the one that I told the seminary that I was going to use the yearbook as being the verse to be beside my name, and one, or Psalm 119, verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testaments are my meditation. I didn't really intend to use that, but one of the professors kind of took off on that a little bit, and he said, Ashley, it is our desire that you will have more understanding than we have. It is very much our desire that you will surpass us. But remember what it says. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? Because thy testaments are my meditation. And you'll achieve that understanding by focusing upon the word of God. But I don't think I'd really use that verse to talk about Noah Webster, although I'm sure as America's schoolmaster, he would be pleased to see people who would excel him and go beyond him and the things that they would do in life. But a verse that I would use for Noah Webster would be Proverbs 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he would not depart from it. Now, people look to that verse and they think, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes we have parents who, well, there's no such thing as a perfect parent, obviously, but parents who have tried their best and seemingly have done everything right, or at least done a good job, and yet their children go the wrong way. Well, children have a free will. And you can lay the foundation for them, and that'll help. But it's not a guarantee that they'll go the right way. Anyway, Noah Webster, as America's schoolmaster, certainly did a great deal to lay the foundations for American Christian education. We can look at this man's life. He was born in 1758 on a farm in Connecticut. He was taught at home primarily and there at home, he learned the alphabet using biblical passages or biblical references for the letter A and Adam's fall, we send all, or for the letter Z, Zebediah, serve the Lord, and other such passages. But also, he would learn the Lord's Prayer. He would learn the Apostles' Creed. He would learn the Ten Commandments. By the age of six... Noah Webster could read from the King James Bible. You know, we compare that to another great intellectual in America that we just mentioned a little bit ago, Jonathan Edwards, and you and I were talking about him before the program began, but he is not only called a great preacher, a great pastor, but he's also referred to as America's first Christian intellectual. Published his first work at age six work on insects, and fascinating. But when you read that sermon that we were talking about, sinners in the hands of an angry God, we think of a screaming preacher up there yelling at his audience. That's not the way Edwards preached. He read his sermons. He wrote them out carefully. He read them, and read them in a very diffident manner, actually. 
But people were convicted by what he said, not because he was so fiery, but because of the soundness and the biblical foundation from which he preached. Well, much the same could be said of Webster. He'd been taught at home, as we said, and then as he was a little older, he went to school. He was taught there by the Reverend Perkins, and a lot of times the pastor, being the best educated person in the community, many times the pastor probably didn't get paid that much, so he would supplement his income by serving as a tutor to children in the congregation. And Reverend Perkins taught Noah Webster Latin and Greek and the classics and taught him a great deal of history, prepared him to go to Yale College, which was a school in Connecticut that had been set up primarily to train people for the ministry. But Webster then went to Yale College at age 16. And education was considered so important that his father actually mortgaged the farm in order to send Noah to school. There at college, he further studied Latin and Greek, but also other languages. He studied Hebrew. He studied Chaldean, which would be the Babylonian language related to Hebrew, Syriac. He learned rhetoric there, that is, the art of speaking and preparing arguments and so on. He recited from Virgil, you know, the Roman poet, from Cicero, the great Roman orator, but also and primarily from the Bible. But there at Yale, he came to Yale in, the 17, in 1774. And the big issue there at Yale at that time, of course, was independence. And you may recall another Yale student by the name of Nathan Hale. And Nathan Hale was an American martyr during the American Revolution who was caught by the British and hanged as a spy, and his words as he was hanged were, I regret that I have but one life to, live for my, to give for my country. And if you ever visit the campus there at Yale, there is a statue of Nathan Hale there on the campus. But anyway, British loyalists were probably treated rather cruelly there at Yale. Yale, like New England as a whole, was a hotbed of pro British advanced on New Haven. That's the community near the coast there where, where Yale is located. The students at this time built earthen ramparts and breastworks. Other, the older students went out to battle against the British. The younger students, including Noah, stayed behind the breastworks and the ramparts and with guns and defended the community. And throughout all of this, Noah Webster was imbued with a love for America and a desire to preserve American liberty, but a conviction that America could not succeed without education.
Once again, we are back. This is Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And we're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, as we went to break, you mentioned uh, the words education along with uh, Noah Webster. What can you tell us about his impact on education? Well, as I say, we call him America's schoolmaster, but we need to understand something of his religious convictions to understand his reasons for favoring education. First of all, like other Calvinists of the time, and he would be a Calvinist, believing strongly in the doctrine of predestination and sovereign grace, although he had also read John Locke, and with John Locke, he might have had some questions about the doctrine of original sin, but he believed that the word of God was to govern in America, but also with John Locke, he understood that we need an understanding of human reason in order to understand the Bible properly. And he referred to America as an empire of reason. One of the reasons that he favored education was so that people could read the Bible, but also to read other classical works as well. In fact, here's something interesting. This is before Noah Webster was born, but the first compulsory education law in America, and I call it a compulsory education law because that's what it was. In America today, we don't have compulsory education laws. We have compulsory attendance laws. You can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink, we say. And But that first compulsory education law was in Massachusetts. It was in the 1740s, and it was called the Old Deluder Satan Act, because it says it being one chief object of that old deluder Satan to keep men from the knowledge of the Holy Scriptures. And because that is Satan's object, this act of the legislature says, it is the duty of every parent to make sure that his child knows how to read and write. And furthermore, in any township that has more than a certain number of families, there needs to be a school. Didn't say that the parents had to send their children to that school, just they have to make sure their children can read and write, but there is to be a school available. And again, the basis for this is simply so that people will be able to read the scriptures. The Northwest Ordinance, adopted in 1787, I believe it was, maybe 89, the Northwest Ordinance talks about in every township setting aside one particular section for school purposes and says that religion, morality, and knowledge being essential to the well-being of a free people Schools and the means of learning shall forever be encouraged. Why do we encourage schools? Because religion, morality, and knowledge are essential. And that's how we learn those things. Although you'd call him a Calvinist and raised in the land of the Puritans there, Connecticut, which would probably be the strictest of all the Puritan New England colonies, and New Haven probably the strictest of the strict, but even though he would identify with the Puritans, he questioned some of the Puritan teaching methods. He wanted to use classics as well as the scripture, 
And he thought that rewards, rather than floggings, were a better means of making sure that children were, had an incentive to learn how to read and write and do arithmetic. But he saw another major problem in America with education, and that's that throughout America, there were so many different dialects that pretty hard for people to even communicate with each other. In fact, you may recall that John Adams of Massachusetts comes down to the legislature where he hears John Witherspoon. Witherspoon was a member of the legislature, but also a pastor, and as I say, the president of the College of New Jersey. And one time he writes back to Abigail Adams that he had attended a sermon of Reverend Witherspoon. He said, it was a sermon on redeeming time, an excellent sermon. And he says, I find that I understand the doctor better now having heard him in Congress. What he meant by this was not that, the, that Witherspoon used big words that Adams didn't understand. What he meant was that Witherspoon spoke with a Scottish brogue, and Adams from New England had a hard time understanding that at first. But we had Southerners with their manner of speaking, and they didn't all speak with a Southern drawl. Those who would be from the Appalachian Mountains would have a very different type of Southern speech from those on the plantations of South Carolina, descended from immigrants, from aristocrats, and so on. But anyway, because of these many dialects and different ways of speaking throughout America, Noah Webster came out with the Noah Webster Speller, a spelling book, a spelling book that could be used throughout America so that we had standard spellings. And if you read through documents from the colonials, colonial preachers and others, you see how they spell things, and it seems so strange to us, but not that they were ignorant, it's simply that we did not have standardized spellings at that time. Noah Webster was probably did more than any other American to bring about standardized spelling that would be practiced across America, all the way from New Hampshire, all the way down to Georgia. And his speller did a great deal to help unite Americans in one common speech, although different accents, different ways of talking, of course, still existed and still exist to this day. He also produced what's probably his best-known work today, and that was his 1828 Dictionary. And Noah Webster's 1828 Dictionary took the words of the English language and put them in a way that people could not only see how they are spelled, but also how they are defined. And, of course, we still have Webster's Dictionary. It's Merriam-Webster now, but it's an unbroken chain, although we do find that the, you know, the language changes over the years, and that's always going to happen, and new words come into the dictionary each edition. New words go out of the dictionary each edition. By the way, Brian, one thing that really shocked me about the newest edition of the dictionary, did you know that the word gullible is no longer even in the dictionary now? <laughs> really? <laughs> no, it's not true, but probably some of our listeners believed us. <laughs> but, yeah, but no, Webster wouldn't have believed us. But these are some of the things that he did. 
to systematize the spelling and definition of words throughout America. Now, even so, back in the 1800s, words were spelled differently from the way they are today. We tended to follow more British spellings than American spellings, and Theodore Roosevelt, around 1900, made another change, and that's that he issued an executive order that in all government documents, you know, he couldn't issue an order telling people how they have to spell things, but he said in all government documents, we're going to use certain spellings, and many times these were simplified spellings, that instead of the E-U-R ending, it would be just simply E-R, or many times like wagon instead of two Gs would be one G and things like that. And anyway, so Noah, rather Theodore Roosevelt, kind of took Noah Webster just a step further. Well, anyway, we saw the great issue of independence, and we saw how Noah Webster took a role in those battles there when New Haven was attacked. Once independence was settled, then came another issue. And that was, what kind of government are we going to have in this country? After all, during the War for Independence, we were governed by the Articles of Confederation, and the Articles basically got us through the war, but they didn't have the necessary power in order to get us through independence, or beyond independence, and into the functioning of a peaceful nation. For one thing, the Articles of Confederation did not authorize Congress to impose any taxes. And we might think that's a good thing, but it's pretty hard to run a defense and other things without it. And rather, they'd simply use requisitions. They would request that the states contribute certain amounts to the national program. And with patriotism from the war, that worked, but just barely afterward, it didn't work at all. There was no Supreme Court, no federal courts. There was no chief executive. And the closest thing to a chief executive was the president of the Continental Congress, who was more like a speaker of the House than an actual president. And so it seemed that this was inadequate. And are we going to get a stronger form of government? Well, Noah Webster was one of those who supported a stronger constitution. And we'll see more about that in the next segment. Excuse me, why don't you have life insurance yet? I've got diabetes, and I know the price will be through the roof for the pre-existing condition. Well, actually, SelectQuote makes it easy to get very affordable life insurance, even if you have a health issue. I'm listening. You'll get quotes from some of the country's most trusted carriers. Even with your diabetes, you can get around $250,000 in insurance for as little as a dollar a day. That would be amazing. <laughs> What's it called again? SelectQuote. Just call or go to selectquote.com to get your free quote. Get the coverage you need at a price you can afford. Call 1-800-694-1010 or go to selectquote.com today. That's 1-800-694-1010 or selectquote.com. SelectQuote. We shop. You save. Get full details on example policy at selectquote.com slash commercials. Monthly premiums vary based on health company and other factors. Not available in all states. 
You spend a third of your life in bed. That's why we make the most comfortable sheets in the very best way. I'm Scott Tannen. Eight years ago, my wife Missy and I founded Bowl and Branch to create the new standard in bedding. We source pure organic cotton and put workers' rights first. Today, Bowl and Branch makes the highest quality sheets in the entire industry. You'll feel the difference of our famous signature sheets. They're made from pure organic cotton and get softer with every single wash. Now's the perfect time to try Bowl and Branch sheets, pillows, bath towels, and so much more. Each is made with super soft organic cotton by workers who are paid fairly and have come to feel like family. It's time to make the better choice and get the new standard in bedding. Visit BowlandBranch.com today for free shipping and returns. Experience a new standard of comfort at BowlandBranch.com and take 15% off your first set of sheets with promo code GOLD. That's B-O-L-L and Branch.com. Promo code GOLD. You know, if you feel like you're stuck with a health care plan that isn't affordable or you simply don't like it, right now is a great time to switch to MediShare. The typical family saves $500 a month when they join MediShare. And what's more, they like it. MediShare has double the customer satisfaction rate compared to the typical health insurance plan. That's double. So you get a massive network of providers to choose from. You get telehealth services. And MediShare is the most trusted name in healthcare sharing. It's been around for more than 25 years, shared more than $4 billion in healthcare bills. Here's why now really is the time to make the switch, too. You can start saving each month, which is huge, but right now they'll waive your joining fee. So you'll save another $170 right off the bat. But again, it's a limited time offer. you got to call now. And it only takes two minutes to find out how much you'd save by switching. Here's the number, 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Welcome you back. This is our final segment today on Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We're with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law, learning about uh, one of the founding generation, one of the big names we, we all recognize but maybe didn't know that much about before, Noah Webster. Fascinating so far, Colonel. Thank you. And as I say, I consider Noah Webster probably more influential than his cousin Daniel Webster, although both are very, very respectable men. But Webster was not a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. However, he often dined with the delegates in the evenings. He would discuss ideas with the delegates while the convention was going on. And once the convention had approved the Constitution and signed it on September 17th, they made Noah Webster their official publicist. And... As such, Noah Webster produced a pamphlet that was widely circulated in the American states at that time. It was titled Examination of the Leading Principles of the Federal Constitution, a very good explanation of the Constitution and why it ought to be ratified, in his opinion. Seems like the Federalist Papers are much better known today, but his examination was at least as well known back at that time. He opposed a Bill of Rights. He thought it was silly. He thought it was unnecessary. He thought, like Hamilton and some of the others did, that we can rely on common law tradition for protecting our rights, and we didn't need a Bill of Rights. But, of course, those who wanted a Bill of Rights prevailed, and we have one, which was a good thing, I think. Then came a third issue after this, and that was the issue of France versus England. 
America is now independent, and we have certainly had a lot more ties to England than to France, but we've also been at war with England, and France has helped us in the war. And so where should our international loyalties be, to England or to France? And the French Revolution came along, and at first, Noah Webster supported the French Revolution. He thought they're fighting for their liberties just like we fought against England. Quickly, he saw that the French Revolution was on totally different principles, on atheistic principles, that liberty, egalite, fraternity, or mort, that is, or death, that he saw where it quickly led to terror, to a reign of terror, and to utter disaster. And so he very shortly shifted from being a supporter of the French Revolution to being an adamant opponent of it. And as a result of that, he broke strongly with Thomas Jefferson and with James Madison and sided with Washington and Alexander Hamilton and John Adams and John Jay and others who opposed the French Revolution. We had the Citizen Genet affair where Citizen Genet came with secret orders to try to overthrow Washington and many were fooled by him. But Webster strongly opposed Genet, saw through him right from the beginning. Once Genet asked him to dinner and well, that turned out to be a disaster. But when Madison led the War of 1812 against England, Webster and the New Englanders practiced interposition, and many of the New England states refused to send troops to support that war, and Webster was quite disillusioned at that point. Several other things, I think, needed to be noticed about Noah Webster. First of all, although he had been raised as a Calvinist and a believer in Calvinist doctrine, he really became serious about his faith, and some will say even that his actual conversion took place in 1808, and that his conversion came at the instigation of his daughters, that they are the ones who led him into a much closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Through this, he became convinced that the Bible was the source of all truth, and from that point on, he wanted to make the Bible more the center of education than he had before. Before, he was willing to have the Bible alongside some of the classics and so on. But after 1808, he was very insistent that the Bible itself be the central part of all education in America. And I mentioned already the dictionary that Noah Webster put together and no, Webster's dictionaries have been standard dictionaries since then, now Merriam-Webster as we call it. But much of this, as I said, did simplify the language and spelling. In fact, he had one change in there that we never got picked up on, but he wanted to change L-A-U-G-H, laugh, to just L-A-F, which seems to make a lot of sense, but that one never did take. Um, but then there's something else that he did around this time, too, and that's that he also prepared a Bible. We call this the Webster Bible. It was released in 1833, and the Webster Bible, it's a fascinating work, unlike a lot of translations that try to go back to the original Greek, and then you have a dispute, which manuscripts do we use, the old 
Textus Receptus, that most of the ancient manuscripts we have are based on that received text or Textus Receptus? Or do we use the Horton-Westcott text or the Alexandrian text or the Sinaitic code and so on? And anyway, those are issues that people resolve. But Webster didn't do that. What Webster did is he started with the King James Bible and kind of assumed the King James is fine as it is unless there are some things in it that need to be changed. And so as he went through the King James, he corrected certain errors in the King James, errors from the Greek or from the Hebrew. He also looked to certain archaisms, that is, things that may have been correct in 1600s when the King James was translated, but as the language had changed its meaning over 200 years, those words were archaic today and therefore could be confusing. And one of the most interesting things that Webster does in his Bible is he has an introduction, a lengthy introduction, and goes through the meaning of words in the Bible. And he was a Greek scholar and a Hebrew scholar, but there were others that are probably equal him in that field, but where Webster's real genius came in in Bible translation is he knew the old Anglo-Saxon and he knew the Middle English. And so especially his introduction, the notes there are extremely valuable, showing how certain words have their roots in the Anglo-Saxon. By the way, if you take it, me something written in Anglo-Saxon, you know, that's the language, like essentially a Germanic language that the Angles and the Saxons spoke when they came to England in the 400s and remained the language up until the Norman Conquest in 1066. But if you look to like the laws that are drafted by King Alfred the Great and so on, it seems like almost a foreign language. You will recognize a word here and there, but Basically, it's much more like German than it is like English. But Webster's genius was that he knew the Anglo-Saxon background of these words. He knew how they had had their changes in Middle English and in Elizabethan English and how they came to mean what they mean today and so on. And that's the real benefit of the Webster Bible. And I'm disappointed, frankly, that the Webster Bible was not in greater use today than it is, I think it should be. And it was produced by Baker Bookhouse, and they produced an edition of it in 1787, which I thought was very interesting because it came out right at the same time that my Christianity and the Constitution came out. But at any rate, I haven't seen the Webster Bible being used much or being cited much, but it should be much more. Now, his dictionary... Of course, the Webster Dictionary, people are still, especially homeschool families, are still going back to using the 1828 Dictionary. And I've used it in legal briefs sometimes to the courts, showing that here's a word in the Constitution, and this is what the word meant at the time the Constitution was written, as reflected in Webster's Dictionary. Remember Webster, he was a confidant with the founding fathers themselves. His dictionary is going to be great insight. So 
We look to this man, Noah Webster, and as we call him America's schoolmaster, we think of a man who grew with time, a man who matured in the Christian faith and in biblical worldview, a man who failed in a number of things. He opened newspapers that many times failed. He tried to publish books sometimes that didn't sell enough to cover his costs, and so he lost there. And he was a Federalist, that is, a supporter of the Hamiltonians in an era where the Jeffersonians were strong. He managed to alienate some, like the French, like Jefferson and Madison, but he persevered as God gave him the light to see the truth. And thank God for Noah Webster today.